Mill City. We're so grateful that you're with us. Uh, I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here at Mill City, and we're so glad that you're joining us. Thank you for those of us who've joined us here live at Quincy Hall, but also for all of you at home, wherever you are. Welcome. We're so glad that you're a part of our community this morning. I know there's people all over the country that are connecting. Hello. We're so glad that you're here. We have had a conversation over this entire year, 2020, where we have been going through the New Testament book by book. And the reason we did that, of course, you know, let's read it together, of course. But what we wanted to say is how do we intentionally look at the life of Jesus, the the story of God, and let that story help inform our story. Let the story of God inform our story that we're living throughout this year, 2020. And it seems that that mission to try to figure out how to let our story be a part of God's story has gotten more critical week by week as we've gone through 2020. That's been my experience at least. So here we are. We've finished a very long election week, right? I never want to see a week with that many Tuesdays ever again. Can I get at least one amen for that? Okay. Never want that many Tuesdays ever again. And of course, in some people's minds, the election isn't over. Nevertheless, uh, it, it was nearly impossible to escape the tension and the chaos of this week. So if you were able to do that, good for you. But I think in many ways, this last year, and maybe even before that, there's been a lot of tension. There's been a lot of what feels kind of chaotic. And so to continue this conversation, we're going through these New Testament letters, and we're calling it the difference Jesus makes. The difference that Jesus makes in the chaos and the tension. And today we're going to jump into the letter of Second John. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. And while it's kind of short in comparison to the other letters that are written here in Scripture, uh, it's not that short compared to lots of other ancient letters from that time. Actually, it's a similar about a similar length to, to books at that time and letters at that time. Because it wasn't that easy just to go out and get like a ream of papyrus, okay? You can't just like head to your first century office depot and get printer paper the way that we do now. And so a lot of the letters were a little bit more short and to the point. And that is true of Second John. So these first three letters, first, second, and third John, these are three letters, are written by John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. And that's going to be important later, okay? So remember that. He's trying to guide some some smaller or medium-sized house churches as they're facing some really difficult situations. These, these house churches have some tension. They have some chaos of their own. And people are trying to do a lot of interesting things. For instance, they're trying to discredit Jesus by saying he wasn't truly human or he wasn't actually God. Uh, he wasn't really one that did miracles. There was all of these these false things happening. And these aren't merely folks who have a different opinion and they're having a cordial conversation. They are mean-spirited people who are generating hurt and strife and division. And John has uh, two titles for these people in this letter, and it is deceivers, and sometimes he calls them the Antichrist, okay? Now, there is a lot of misperception about the word Antichrist, okay? I know some of you have heard it before. Here in this letter, it's not about a person, a single person. Perhaps think of it this way. Think of it as uh, people who are anti-Jesus or against the things that Jesus is about. Or, or people who are against the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. All right? So uh, it, people who are, it's a spirit of being against Jesus. Does that make sense? So if you're like having some images of like an arch nemesis from a Marvel movie like coming out of nowhere, that's not what we're talking about. Okay? That's not what we mean. It's not what John means about Antichrist here. So John's writing these letters, and what he's trying to do is some damage control. He's trying to do some damage control when it comes to these anti-Jesus deceivers and and damage that they've done to these communities of house churches that are relatively young and new. And while I'd say that the world we live in today is extremely different than the first century in so many ways, I know I see some parallels here. 
When I look around, I see so many who have generated hurt and strife and division. And I'm not saying that I'm above that. I see this on all sides of the political situation. I see this in the health crisis that we're facing. I see this in the false information that's seeming to just be shared without care of what damage it might do. The anti-Jesus spirit is all around. Do you see it? Folks caring more for themselves than their neighbor, name-calling, blaming, racism, sexism, lots of isms apparently. This is the spirit of anti-Jesus. It's in our midst. And I, like I said, I confess that I'm not above this. I can get sucked into this nasty spirit, and it looks nothing like Jesus. So John has some damage control to do as a leader. And I think how he approaches the damage done in the church in the first century can give us a little bit of a framework of how we can approach the damage that's been done around us because of this anti-Jesus spirit that sometimes we've participated in. So let's read the beginning of this short letter together. John refers at the beginning of the letter in a kind of interesting way. He says, to the lady chosen by God. Now, this is likely not an actual woman, but a common way to refer to the church, which was often personified as a woman. And so he's writing these letters to a church. Now, I want you to notice as I read this, what does John repeat in just these few verses more than anything? All right, so pay attention. What did John, what does John repeat the most in these, just these few verses? We're just going to read the first few few verses of 2 John, and I'll start at the beginning here. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing to you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, Jesus' commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. I'll I'll finish it there. Did did you notice? What did you notice John repeat multiple times? Anyone? Yes, truth. The word truth. Five times he talks about the truth. So when trying to do damage control like he's doing amongst people who are deceivers, it makes sense he would emphasize the truth, doesn't it? And that's what he's doing. But what is John referring to when he's repeating truth over and over? What truth are we talking about? Well, in the the NIV version that I just read, the word truth is not capitalized, but in some translations it is because John is referring to the truth, not as like an intellectual set of intellectual tenets, but rather to Jesus. Jesus is the truth, and the truth about Jesus is what, what John's talking about. And so John is echoing his own writing. Remember I said that he also wrote the Gospel of John, the, the, his version of the story of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And when Jesus is saying this, he's got his disciples around him and they're feeling really anxious and they're feeling really unsure about the future because Jesus had just told them that he's going to leave them, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit. 
After spending all that time with him, they're, they're nervous about that reality that Jesus is leaving. And so Jesus is trying to comfort them and express to them that they can trust him. That he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And right before he says that, he says that important command that Michael talked about last week, that John talks about in both 1st, 2nd John, and this is from John 13. As I have loved you, Jesus says to his disciples, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then John echoes that in 2nd John. Remember, he says, I'm not writing to you a new command, right? We've heard this from Jesus. I'm, I'm giving you one you've seen from the beginning. Because way back, it was the the most important commandment to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so I ask that we love one another. As you have heard from the beginning, Jesus' command is that you walk in love. That you walk in love. Okay, so if I was going to sum up John's damage control plan, all right, Steph version of the summary, I would say it's this. I'll put it on the screen. To respond to the damage done in our world today, we are invited to walk in the truth and love of Jesus. To respond to the damage done in our world today, we are invited to walk in the truth and love of Jesus. This is what I hear John saying with his whole heart to this church that he loves. It seems kind of simple in a way, doesn't it? Uh, But I don't think it's necessarily that easy to do. Because if it were easy, then why did Jesus have to repeat it so often? And why is John having to say it again and again throughout the story of God? having to emphasize love and truth so often because I think it's it's tough. I think 2,000 years ago when they were hearing this for the first time, it was tough. And here we are. I find it increasingly difficult to do this in my own life, sometimes as each day goes forward. But I think it is possible. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Now, John is also echoing one other place in his gospel where Jesus interacts with this idea of truth. Maybe you're thinking about it. Where else does Jesus talk about the truth? It's towards the end of chapter 18. If you're familiar with the last week of Jesus' life, after Jesus is arrested, he's brought before Pilate. Pilate's a political leader, kind of like a middle management guy, okay? He's got a lot of power in that region, but he uh, isn't emperor. And Pilate interrogates Jesus as to why he's being accused of treason. Pilate questions Jesus to say, you're claiming that you're a king, right? Which is the treason. To claim that you're king is what he's being accused of because that's treason. Nobody can claim to be more powerful than the emperor. To do that was punishable by death. But then Jesus kind of cryptically responds to Pilate, if you remember this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Even though Jesus had said that the kingdom is among us, it's not of this world, he's saying. It's not the same as the little kingdom's. I often call them the little kingdoms. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. You say that I am king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate's response is to, and this is a quote, to retort. Okay, that's what it says in the NIV. He retorted, what is truth? What is truth? Jesus just said, if you're on the side of truth, you're going to listen to me. But Pilate's response is, what is truth? And then he does not wait to get an answer from Jesus. He does not seem interested in Jesus' response to his sarcastic question. And, and, and a better question in that moment would have been, who is truth? But Pilate then, he doesn't see any basis to charge him. And so uh, the, if you know, if you remember the story, the religious leaders prevail and Jesus is sentenced to death. Why was Jesus killed? What was the accusation? 
The accusation was that he was more powerful than the political leaders, wasn't it? This part of the story is deeply political. It is politically subversive at this time. And it's true, isn't it? Jesus is more powerful than Pilate. Jesus is more powerful than the emperor. Jesus is more powerful than any president, any prime minister, any other leader that we have today. And it's notable, isn't it, that Jesus didn't back down from that truth. But he also didn't respond with physical might or political power, though he could have. His way to testify to the truth was to give his very life for the people that he loved. And for the people who accused him in the first place. Because he still loved them. So let's talk openly for just a minute about the election this week. I know it's on top of mind for most of you. You don't need to be anxious. Let's just talk about it. It looks like at this time there's going to be a transfer of power from one administration to the next. How peaceful that's going to be kind of remains to be seen. Um, But besides that, let me talk about what I think has become painfully clear in this season. A few things. This season has been very hard and very long for nearly everyone. That feels like something that I have seen clearly. I've seen that we have an embarrassing spiral into a lack of civility and compassion and empathy for those that we disagree with. There's been this deep decline in critical thinking and the ability to see complexity. Sometimes it feels like the nuance of many situations is just sucked out of the room. We've seen a deep depth of despair in the lives of the marginalized. We've seen record-setting anxiety in the minds of those who fear that their freedoms might be limited. The ugly and pervasive effects of white supremacy and racism striking terror in people's lives. We've seen division and polarization wider than I know I have seen in my lifetime. This season has exposed who we are. And Christians don't seem to look much different as we've been exposed in this time as well. So while I know that this election is a celebration to some and a disappointment to other people, what I think is true is this, and this is really important. It's always been true and it'll continue to be true. No matter who is president, the work of the church is never done. So to respond, right, to respond to the damage done in our world today, we are invited to walk in the truth and love of Jesus to love our community in the name of Jesus, as we say here in our mission at Mill City. I have a friend named Lisa Rodriguez Johnson. She is a a fellow pastor in D.C., and she wrote this powerful, powerful essay this week, and it just captured so much of my heart, and I know a lot of your heart, for what it looks like. What does it look like, though, practically, for us to, to walk in the truth and love of Jesus in this time? Her essay was called, A Presidency Ends, But the Church Work, Church's Work Continues. And I was going to try to paraphrase what she said, but listen, it's powerful, and I want to read it to you. So I want you to listen closely to what she says, because I really think that she is onto something. Pastor Lisa says, If the church is to rise to her calling and be her truest self, the result will be that Christians will recognize the real, everyday, in-the-trenches work ahead of us. We cannot simply relegate our values to the government via the voting booth and wash our hands of responsibility. To be sure, voting is important. However, it is the inception of the work, not the consummation of it. The work ahead, she says, will require a steadfast commitment to healing and reparation 
both of which are predicated on personal and communal repentance. Without an unwavering dependence on the Holy Spirit, this work will be shallow and short-lived. We must continue, she says, to pursue justice no matter how costly. It will cost time. It will cost money. It will cost personal comfort. It will cost the ease of relationships. It will be messy. It will make us tired, but it will be the good kind of tired. And she goes on to talk about how even though a new president would be a big change, given how different the two options were, she says that will be a big change. But then she says this, what doesn't change is the work that is ahead in holding our politicians accountable for using their power to do justice, to care for the common good. What doesn't change is how we pursue justice and righteousness in loving God and loving our neighbor each and every day. What doesn't change is the call to love our enemy and to hold that intention. What does it mean to love our enemy and and to pursue justice and righteousness in light of that call? What doesn't change is the role of the church to live in light of a kingdom that has come and is coming and is ushering in the renewal of all things. The strategies will be different with a different president, but the work ahead of us is in front of us one way or the other. And then she says, may we faithfully do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. To respond to the damage done in our world today, we are invited to walk in the truth and love of Jesus. And so I think she's summing up some of what this would look like. And I think it's so critical just to make it very clear when it comes to political leaders, regardless of who is leading locally, nationally, Jesus followers have an important role. And that is to champion what looks like justice and love and mercy of God's kingdom and to confront what comes up short, to confront what is an affront to God's heart. There is no political leader or party that can bring healing that is so desperately needed in our country, in our world, and in our families and in our hearts. Only Jesus can do that. And our part in that is, isn't easy, but it's relatively clear. It's that we will walk in the truth and love of Jesus. Sometimes we say we join God's redemptive work in the world. But it's not easy. And that's because we have some obstacles, I think. Here's the thing. We don't get to escape and say politics don't matter. They do. Clearly, they affect people's lives deeply, even if you don't feel that on the same personal level. While it might be true, we don't get to use the line, Jesus is in control, as a way of avoiding to take responsibility for the invitation we have as Jesus followers to join the hard work of reconciliation and justice and love, not in a way of judgment. We also don't get to use power and control as tools to force our way to get our way, no matter how many people around us we see doing that. We get to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, who did what? Who laid down his life with a willingness to let the power of God's love and God's service be what testified to the truth, right? To testify that Jesus is our Savior, our Lord. What does Lord mean? Our leader. Jesus is our leader. Okay, so then what what are the signs that we're walking in that truth? If we want to walk in that truth and love, I think a good question for all of us, I hope you want to, is just to say, how do we do that? Because It's not, like I said, an intellectual, a list of intellectual tenets. It's not getting it right. Needing to always be right is always about power and control and fear of being wrong. 
I've heard it referred to as the arrogance of rightness. Yikes. So let's talk about this. What's the difference? I think when you, when you, you know, it's not that right and wrong don't matter, but when you start with the person of Jesus and a relationship with Jesus, and, and that leads us into a deeper truth, doesn't it? And I think we see a, a contrast here. And I'm going to put up a, a, it on the screen so you can see it. Here's the contrast I see. Versus the arrogance of rightness versus walking in the truth and love of Jesus. Look at this here. The arrogance of rightness looks like needing to prove that you are right. Walking in the truth is humble wisdom centered on Jesus. The arrogance of rightness looks like a spirit of fear. Walking in the truth and love of Jesus is confidence in God's love for you. And God's love through you and to the people right around you. In 1 John, John says perfect perfect love drives out fear. But guess what? It works the other way around. Fear drives out love. The arrogance of rightness looks like egocentrism and selfishness. I've seen it in my own life. But walking in the truth looks like a radical love of neighbor. It looks like biblical justice. It looks like service of others. Do you look at that and do you see the contrast? Do you notice maybe some of the signs in your own life? I know I do. I see the contrast there. So these, these shifts are critical. I think that they can feel a little overwhelming. So if you feel a little overwhelmed right now, I want to just offer one practical practice, one practice, one thing that you can do today or this week. Let's break down these big, this big contrast into some actionable steps that we can all take tomorrow, okay? So the first question is this. How do we walk in wisdom centered on Jesus? If that's, if that's humble wisdom centered on Jesus, how do we do that? We need to strengthen the muscles of discernment in our life. Discernment, meaning that we are, are connected to the heart of God. What does Jesus' wisdom look like in our lives? I, I have a personal retreat day outline that I emailed to our email list earlier this week. It's like three to five hours. I know it's hard to find that. But the focus is the topic of wisdom. And if you aren't on our email list, if you, get, if you connect to us, go to millcitychurch.com slash connect. I'll send it out again this week. What would a few hours focusing on God's wisdom do to help us to, to form our hearts towards God's wisdom in our lives? Second, how do we let love cast out fear? How do we let love cast out fear? If you didn't have a chance to see the centering prayer time that we had on YouTube, it was on YouTube and Facebook this week, you can still go back and watch it. Our friend Christine Osgood did this really helpful practice. I'm going to show it to you really quick. And this is a very easy thing that you can do no matter where you are, okay? I'm going to show it on the piece of paper. Take a piece of paper like this. And you just take a circle. She did this. If you did it with her, it was awesome. You just write, God, I am. And then you continue that. Move out from there and just put some, some feeling words on there. How do you feel? What's going through your mind and heart? It's really important to be able to name those things that we're feeling. If we want fear to have less control over our lives, sometimes they call it name it to tame it. That's <laughs> what psychologists say, name it to tame it. And that means it doesn't mean it's not there, but it doesn't take control over you. She's got one more step. And she says, go a little bit further and make some notes about what it is that's making you feel tired or anxious or angry or curious or whatever emotions you have. And this is the kind of thing that gets something out of your head and heart and onto a page, and then you can submit it and surrender it to God. So that these fears, while they're real, 
They don't have to take power over us. They don't have to control us in this way. Just a simple practice that you can do. Like I said, you can see Christine walk through it on our, on our YouTube and on our Facebook channel. And then finally, what does radical love of neighbor look like? And here's the thing. That, that sounds intense, doesn't it? Radical love of neighbor. Okay, here's the thing. What's just one step? What's one thing that you can do this week to help make some wrong things right? That's what justice means. There's no shortage of wrong things around us. What is one thing personally in your family, in your neighborhood? What is just one way that you can participate in making a wrong thing right? Or, or, or ta- tangibly serving other people, like we talked about. What does it look like to serve other people? Earlier, Brooke mentioned our response for Thanksgiving serve this week, this, this year. What a cool way to show love to people who have felt so marginalized and experienced so much pain. People in Claire Housing have experienced that because of their diagnosis of HIV and AIDS. Or, or helping to, to give a pie, a dessert, to somebody who's facing this whole chaotic year, just like we are with the addition of food insecurity on top of it at the little kitchen food shelf. These are small things, but they matter to people. They let people feel seen and known and loved. And guess what? When we do it, our hearts are shaped more like the heart of Jesus. It's not big gestures. It's the little ones. So to respond to the damage done in our world today, we are invited to walk in the truth and love of Jesus. I have to say, Jesus has made all the difference for me in 2020. I know that's a pastor thing to say, but here's the thing. This is, this is the reality. When I have been walking in the arrogance of rightness, I have been a mess. And when this year I have walked in the truth and love of Jesus, I have hope. I have a different sense of peace. I can see that what we're experiencing now is not the end. That brokenness is not the end of the story. We have a future hope where Jesus makes all the wrong things right. Jesus has made all the difference for me in my life. And so, you know, if you're someone who's listening to this and you have not given your life to Jesus, look, I get it. It is no small thing to give up control of your life, to surrender it to Jesus. But it is the beginning of something incredible to live your life for God's glory in the world. And if that's a decision you want to make, please get in touch with us. And perhaps for all of us listening, on the eve of a big change in our country, the most important thing we can do as Jesus followers is this. To recommit, to re-surrender again our allegiance to King Jesus. To accept his love and his truth but also to accept the kingdom responsibility to be bold and courageous citizens of the kingdom of God. And I, my prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would lead us to join God's work in this world in the name of Jesus if we were to make that prayer of surrender. So I want to close with a prayer of surrender today. And if you agree with this prayer, if you're not ready, that's okay. But if you agree with this prayer, I encourage you just whether you're at home or you're here, you can say amen. You can agree in your heart. But let me just pray corporately. As Pastor Lisa said, a prayer of repentance and surrender as we desire to follow and walk in the footsteps of Jesus in truth and love as we continue the rest of this year. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you as your kids who don't have it all figured out, who don't have it all together who on our own are a mess. But we also thank you that you have made us in your image to be able to join in your work in the world. And so we confess and we repent of the things we have done and the things we have left undone. 
And we surrender to you again and anew. We give ourselves to you, our everyday life. What we do from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep, we surrender it to you. Lead us, Holy Spirit, empower us. We cannot do it without you. God, we pray for our leaders. We know that you love them. They are your kids. But help us to always see that you are more powerful, Jesus. And that your kingdom is above all. That these little kingdoms, they matter. Lead us as we figure out how to join in your work in the little kingdoms. But Jesus, we pledge allegiance to you as the king. And we promise to do everything we can to follow you by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Without you, we can do nothing, you say. And so we draw close to you, Jesus, in this time. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with courage. Forgive us. Give us an ability to receive your love so that it will overflow onto the lives of the people around us as you modeled for us, even the people who are against you, Jesus. Thank you for that model. Thank you for that empowerment. And thank you for that love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.